Father, thank you that um, thank you for this place. Thank you that we can come every week and hear from you. Thank you for your word, which is amazing and and is so clear, Lord, when we look at it. Thank you that you you wipe away any difficulty with it, and you you speak directly into our lives um, with with this word, Lord. And you do cut through. You cut through all the all the fog and the confusion and the chaos that somehow wraps itself around our mind and you just cut straight through and give us the clear truth of who you are and what you've done and I praise you for it Lord God and I know that without this word I know where I would be and that would be nowhere and so I praise you and thank you for this word I praise you that you reveal yourself to me to us through this word and I ask you now Lord God to open our ears so that we hear every last word that you have to say. In Jesus' name, <coughs> amen. amen. Okay, we finished last time um, having a look at the um, amazing power of God that Peter talks about in um, Second Peter. Um, it's the same power that Paul calls the surpassing great power of God, and, um, and that by that power, Peter says, God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse uh, 2 or 3, that uh, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So, um, this surpassing power of God, this great power of God, has granted already, past tense, granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And it's that power that A, raised Christ from the dead, and B, bring, will bring him back to this planet. That's the power that Peter is writing about. At the end of this chapter, he's going to write about the transfiguration, where he saw the transfigured Jesus Christ on the mountaintop, and he saw him as he had never seen Christ before. This is before the resurrection, before his death. He sees what Christ will look like in power, and it just takes his breath away. It takes his breath away. And it's that power that he's writing about here. And he opens his letter with this, that this power of God has granted everything that we need for life and godliness. And I wonder sometimes if we really truly believe that or understand it, that it's that power that is at work in us. Paul will write in Ephesians, um, Ephesians chapter 1, he writes a fantastic chapter of all that is true of us in Christ. And then at the end of chapter 1, he prays. For the, he says, and I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened, that you will know the hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance in the saints, and the surpassing great power that is at work towards us who believe. There is this power at work towards us, in us, through us um, as believers. And really, that power is the power that raised Christ from the dead. It is the power that will bring him back to the planet. It's the power that created the universe. That power is at work within us. And Peter says, if you believe that, test it. 
Test that power in your life. Test your faith by testing the power. And last time we talked about um, the way that we test it is that we minister what God has already given us. We minister to ourselves. I said that the word that's translated uh, supply, so where are we in verse 5 now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And then in your moral excellence knowledge and then um, uh, self-control, perseverance, patience, brotherly kindness, love, supply those things. Well, that word supply, I said last time, means minister. Minister to yourself these things. And those things are available because God has made them available to you through the surpassing power. This is power that has given you everything you need for life and godliness. So the way you test your own faith is that you draw on what God has already done. Now, that's quite amazing. Because you can't add these things to yourself. You can't add these things to your faith. You can't add perseverance and patience if that's not part of your normal, everyday personality and character. How can you do that? How can you supply those things? What he's talking about is you drawing on what God has already supplied. And that that is a test as to whether you have believed in the real Jesus Christ. Because he's writing a letter about false teaching false teaching that's, that promotes a false gospel that, that is inevitably uh, a false salvation. And so he, he's saying to them, test your faith, test it, and see if you've become short-sighted or, or blind. As we read, we read through all of this, this um, half of this chapter last time, so I'm not going to read it all again, but minister God's character to yourself. He's made that possible for you. Minister the character of God to yourself. If you need something for life and godliness, ask God to, to give it to you. And then believe that he has ministered to that to yourself. And what will you find? What does Peter expect you to find when you do that? All those things. Yeah. 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 But, but in what way will you find it? I mean, how will that happen? Carol, what, what is he expecting? When Peter talks about this power that has granted us everything for life and godliness, and then he says, test yourself, supply these things, minister these things, what's he expecting you to find? Let's take perseverance, or patience, or brotherly kindness, or love. Any one of them. Take one of them. Yeah? But when, when we're thinking about, okay, how do you add brotherly kindness to yourself? How do you... How do you love with the love of Christ? How do you find patience out of nowhere? Yeah, you ask for it. Okay, you ask for it, and then what? So you ask for patience. And, God brings a difficult and then God brings a difficult situation, normally a difficult person. <laughs> and so he brings a difficult person. And then what do you do? What will be the next step? <laughs> Maybe again and again and again, yeah. But, but basically what Peter's saying is, will you believe, will you trust that God has already provided that? And will you stand in that patience? I.e., let's say perseverance, which is a bit more easy to understand, persevering through a trial, a difficult circumstance. Will you believe when you're in the trial that God knew the trial, he knew, knew that it would come, he knew exactly what it was, he measured it out for you so it wouldn't be too much. He knows that you can cope with this trial. So will you literally say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
I can face anything that comes. I will not be afraid. And when you do that, what does Peter say is going to happen? When you do that, yeah, you'll find that you are persevering. And you will be able to look at yourself and say, where has that come from? Because I don't know where that's come from. I don't have that in and of myself. When you find yourself being more gracious to people, it will be almost a surprise. <laughs> oh my goodness, look at that. And, and that's what he's saying, and that is a test like no other. Because you know it's happened to you, and you don't know how it happened, except that God did it. So, I mean, really, I mean, I like to keep a journal, so, but if you don't keep a journal, you should write, keep a journal. And just ask God to supply these things. Minister these things to you, yourself. Or actually not ask him. Say, I believe you have given me everything already. So I'm going to minister these things to myself. And then make a note of when you find that you've tested your faith. And, um, and, and minister his character. Because that's what you're doing. You're ministering the character of Christ to yourself. And Peter says, when that happens that will knock you off your feet. That you will be amazed at the transformation in you. And that that, that will bring joy. Um, and will actually enable you, because he talks about us partaking of the divine nature. We are already partaking of the divine nature. And, and what, but what he's saying is, as you minister these things to yourself, you'll be sharing more and more in the divine nature. You'll be aware of sharing more and more the divine nature. Um, and you see, and Peter's expecting you and me to say, wow, wow, that's amazing. He's expecting us to think that's fantastic. And, and the problem with the church, one of the problems with the church is that we only think miracles are fantastic. We only talk wow about gold dust or about angels we see flying overhead or about some supernatural experience that we haven't got words for. That's when we say wow. But Peter and all the New Testament writers expected us to say wow to the transforming work of the Spirit within us. It is, but, but what it, they're, expect, they're expecting us to be amazed at that miracle. Um, well, then, but you're, that's not usual in our church today. It's not usual. Oh, right, yes, yeah. And it's almost as though you're given the hardest test first. <laughs> well, it depends. <laughs> it depends. Yeah. Well, I dare say we could go around the room and we would each find something difficult here. Um, and I guess self-control is difficult depending on which, what is the thing you have to control because we each have our um, weak points. So, 
Okay, so um, Peter gets down to verse um, 8, 9 and 10 and he talks about if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Now, he uses a phrase, calling and choosing. Be all the more certain about his calling and choosing you. What does he mean? I mean, he's telling them to test their faith by ministering these things themselves. He says, if, you, if you're practicing these things, if this is happening in you, you're, you're not going blind or short-sighted, and you are fruitful. And he, he, he says, that, and that um, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. So, what does that mean? Yeah. Okay, so I want to get into this calling and choosing because every time I've looked at any sort of commentary or any sort of book about calling and choosing, the commentator always turns it the other way around. They always talk about God choosing and calling, never calling and choosing. Um, it's as if, depending on what camp you're in, either God chooses you and then you hear the call, or um, he doesn't, you know, he just, it doesn't matter and, you know, um, he doesn't do any choosing. So I want to un us to understand what does it mean, calling and choosing. Right. So if you looked good at football, yeah, yeah, we don't want. I know, I know, yeah, yeah. Poor you, John. Okay, the calling comes first because Peter's put it first. Calling and choosing. These words are not randomly inserted. These are specific. So how does God call? How does he call? See, Calvinists would have us believe that he chooses. So he went round the room and he said, I'll have Carol, but I won't have Ian, and I'll have Rich, but I won't have Sue. That's what Calvinists believe. God chooses some for salvation and some not. That's what he, the Calvinists believe. Arminians believe that God doesn't do any choosing, we choose. Do we want God or not? And so most... Christians are divided into Calvinists or some, some level of Calvinism or Arminianism, some level of that. Um, but I, I want to know what we believe here because it's important. It's really important. How do you know God calls everybody? <laughs> Where does it say? Yeah, somewhere in this book it says, yeah. So, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, will not perish but have eternal life. That is John 3.16. It is a categoric statement that God loves the entire world. Calvinists believe God loves his chosen. Yeah. <laughs> they do. That's what they believe. God loves those who he chose. They believe that Christ died for those whom God chose. He didn't die for everybody else. He died for the elect. So, I, the re only reason I want to push it is I want to make sure that we understand what we understand, that we believe what we believe, and we know why we believe it. 
So God calls everyone. It says in 2 Peter that he is not willing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So God um, um, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, we are the whosoever's, the whosoever's, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And there is no condition to that. It's unconditional. If you put your trust in Jesus, you are saved. You will not perish. Okay, so what's the choosing? Calling and choosing. No, not on our side. God's calling and choosing. So how do... How, yeah. So this is what Peter's saying. Make all the more certain about his calling and choosing you. So now, we can get that he called us, because we're the whosoever believes, we believed. What does the choosing mean? So he did choose some and not others. I'm not trying to tr be tricky. I'm really trying to get to the bottom of it, because I think it's, it's fundamental to what we believe about God. Well, that's, people will quote that. Many are called, but few are chosen. Chosen by who? By God? Well, this says, no, this says that. He, be certain, make, make certain of his calling and choosing you. So I want to understand what the choosing means. We know the calling. He calls everybody through Christ. If you put your trust in Christ, you will be saved. You won't perish. But the choosing, what did God actually choose then? Did he choose those who would put their trust in Christ? Did he not choose us all? Some of us recognised So what was the choosing? Choosing to save us. Us No, because that would be him choosing. So he prompted you, but he didn't prompt Ian. Yes. Do you see what I mean? Well, first of all, he chose to make a way back to him. Right, but what's his promise to you? What's his promise to you? If you put your trust in Jesus, what? I will save you. I will save you. Anyone and everyone who puts their trust in Jesus will be saved. Not only will they be saved, but in Ephesians it says that God chose us to be holy and blameless. So anyone who puts their trust in Jesus will become holy and blameless. Do you see what I mean? This is not God choosing you and not you. It's not God choosing, you know, to choose. It's not that he chose you because you believed in him. It's that he decided before he made the world, before Christ came, before he died, that anyone who put their trust in him would be saved. Now, if we deny that... If we deny that, what are we saying about God? If we say no, he chooses us because we choose him, or he chooses some and not others. You're denying a his sovereignty or his right to choose, yeah. And what's his promise to you in the cross of Jesus? What's his promise to me? Eternal life in Christ. His promise is eternal life when I believe. So if I say, oh yes, but God chose Debbie and not Sue, then she, you, Sue didn't have a chance to believe anyway, so what's that all about? What's the calling? And so, but if I say he only chose Debbie because you chose him, 
then I'm putting salvation in your hands and not God's. So this way, God chose before the foundation of the world to make available a saviour. And anyone who put their trust in that saviour would receive all that God had promised to that person. Now, actually, when you think about that, that works in every promise of God. It works for Israel and his promises to Israel. It works for ev well, every promise of God. Every promise of God. How do you know, you see, that you're going to be transformed into the image of Christ? How do you know that's going to happen? Because you trust the promise of God. You trust the promise of God. But if God breaks his promise... Yeah, but if he did, which he can do any moment he wants, if he decided, <laughs> yeah, but what I'm saying is, just, just think for a moment, if God could break a promise, there would be nothing we could do about it. So when you say, when we say, well, I've believed in Jesus, therefore I'm saved, actually that's not true. You are saved because God makes good on his promise. That's the only reason we're saved. We are transformed because God makes good on his promise. Everything falls apart if God is not a promise-keeping God. Everything. So now, think about that. Bring that down to every area of your Christian life. If God doesn't keep his promise, you will never be holy. You'll never be blameless. You'll never get to heaven. You'll never look like Christ. You'll never have joy and peace. You'll never be able to control yourself. You'll never be able to grow in love and brotherly kindness. None of it is possible if God doesn't keep his promises. So can you see, uh, I don't know if you can see where I'm going, and maybe it's not as important to you as it is to me, but it's really important to me because if I hold to the fact that God chooses Brian and not Pete, I cannot, I have to rationalise that in my head or I have to try to make that fair or just. And I find myself thinking about God that he is not as fair as I am. And he's not just. And he's not good. And he's not righteous. And so actually, that belief that God chooses some and not others defames the character of God. And denies his promise that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's really important that we, we understand this calling and choosing it's really important that we understand what God has chosen us for because in the context of this letter, what is Peter saying he's, call, he's chosen us for? He's called us and chosen us for what? Yeah, and put it in Peter's words, in Peter's words, to become more and more partakers, sharers of the divine nature, to lay hold of his precious and magnificent promises, to be all that he has promised us to be. That's what Peter's writing about. And he's writing in the context of false teachers. And what he's saying is there is a way to test the promise of God to you. There is a way to test that God really will make good on his promise. And that is to lay hold of what he's already supplied and minister it to yourself. You need more grace? There it is. You need peace, you need kindness, you need self-control, you need brotherly love, you need love like God loves you, then here it is. Come to this well of living water and minister it to yourself. And it's so important because 
It, it proves the promise of God, that God is real and that his promise is true. But it also removes from you having to drum up self-control. Okay, right, I know I'm supposed to be self-controlled and I know that I've got to give this, you know, add this to my faith. But it's just so hard. And the more I try to be controlled, the less controlled I am. So, but now what Peter is saying is, it's right there for you, John. Here it is. It's right here. Just... Take that and minister it to yourself. I know I've said it before a million times, and you've probably got your own examples, but that's exactly what happened to me with drinking. Exactly that. I didn't have these words for it. I didn't, hadn't studied Second Peter, but that's exactly what happened. I trusted God's word to me, and it was easy. It wasn't difficult. And I did something I never thought I would be able to do, and I did it like that. That's what this is. And, and that to me is a bigger miracle than gold dust from the ceiling, than, you know, a thousand angels round about. It's bigger. And because it's real. And I can test it. And now, nine years later almost, I'm not drinking. Nine years. That's amazing. And that's the work of God. So I really write a journal, make these, just write them down, the things that you are struggling with, the things that you, you know that you are not honouring God in, the things that you, that, that you just really want to be rid of. Write them down and then write underneath it, I believe that I am a partaker of the divine nature, that I have already escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust, that I have everything I need pertaining to life and godliness. Write it down and then write the thing down that you really want to be rid of. Your impatience with your spouse, your arguments with your family, your just bitterness about whatever's happened here or there or how someone did you out of this or how, you know, nobody else is as gracious as you are and they all need to be gracious like you. Write that down and then say, but God... I believe you have given me all I need to be done with this. That's how you test it. That's how you test it. That's how you test that your faith is real. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church or how many times you come here on a Tuesday night or how many Bibles you've got at home. or It doesn't matter. Any of that doesn't matter. It's the real tangible things in your life that you can look at and say, God did that. He did that. He made good on his promise to me. And that's what Peter wants them to do. He wants them to minister to themselves. He wants them to test themselves. He wants them to be all the more certain about them, God's calling and choosing them because he's writing to a church that is being beset by false teaching. He'll call it cleverly devised tales. And he'll uh, talk about them, just destructive heresies. And what he's trying to tell them is there is a way to test whether or not you have believed in the real Jesus Christ. There is a way to test whether you truly are saved. And it's important because one day you are going to want to enter the eternal kingdom. And what he's going to say is, 
be all the more diligent to be certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. That word supplied, again, means ministered. So it's the same word as in verse 5. God will minister the entrance into his eternal kingdom to you. What will happen um, as you start to supply and minister to yourself? What will happen? See, God doesn't need to be certain about his calling and choosing you. God knows. You need to be certain. And those, if you don't minister these things to yourself, if you don't do the things that the Bible tells you to do, that God tells you to do, you will never be sure of your salvation. You can have experience after experience after experience. It can be magical. You can be in church and raise your hands at the music. You can, you can fall flat on your back and somebody catch you. You can, all of those things, you can have all those experiences, but you will still never be sure that you're saved. Because the only true way to know that you're saved is to know that within you, the Holy Spirit is at work. That's the truth. And what Peter says is, if you minister to yourself, God will minister to you this wonderful, triumphant entrance into the eternal kingdom. And you will find that you grow to be more like Christ. You will partake more and more of the divine nature. And if that happens, you will be certain that you have eternal life. And you will find that you stumble less often, you fall less often, and you love more often. You, you'll yeah, fall, make your, your, your failures and your mistakes and your sin will get less and less. Your bitterness will reduce, your unforgiveness will reduce, your, um, your lack of grace will disappear. Your, yeah, the, the fact that you have no assurance, that will start to be changed into a complete assurance that you are a Christian and that you are part of God's family. And as that happens, the truth of what Peter said right at the beginning Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, that you will find grace and peace multiplied to you and in you. You will find that your life is lived in an atmosphere of grace and peace. And you will love more people than you don't love. And you will fall less often than you have been falling. Um, okay. And Peter, that's what Peter wants them to know. Right at the beginning of this letter, he wants them to know that there's a way to be sure. There's a way to be absolutely positive that you belong to God and he belongs to you. There's a way to see the magnificence of God at work in you. And he expects, as I said, he expects you to say, wow, wow, I want to see that. Um, Jesus said he came to give life, didn't he? And life abundant. John 10, he said, I came that you might have life and life abundant. How do you receive that life? How did he give you that life abundant? It's simple, it's not tricky. Yeah, he gave you himself by his spirit. He gave you himself. That's how you got life. I am the way, the truth and the life. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. He is the life. 
Now, the abundance of that life. He came to give us abundant life. How will we experience abundant life? If life is Christ in me, by his spirit, how will I experience the abundance of that life? By drawing on who he is. By doing exactly what Peter is telling us to do. Draw on what is already there. Um, false teachers find it easy to deceive people and confuse people who don't know the word of God. They, they find it easy because the only way that you know this stuff is through the word of God. There's no way that you would ever know that you're a partaker in the divine nature if you didn't have Peter's letter. I think partly it's that, but I, but I think also that actually mostly people don't really believe that they can get that from this word. They don't really believe it's a living word. They don't really believe that it will change them, that it will shine a light on their life. They don't really believe those things. We say we believe them, but... Yeah. 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 And we're going to get to that, actually, in just a little while, because Peter talks about the word being a sure word and a lamp shining in a dark place. And um, so, um, you know, Peter's, he's going to say to us, the only way you know anything for sure is that it's confirmed in the word of God. That every experience you have must be confirmed in the word of God. Even the transfiguration. He says, even that, where he saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, made the prophetic word more sure. So in and of itself, it's a fantastic experience, and, and they heard God speak. But Peter says that that event made the prophetic word, what he knew was coming from the Old Testament, more sure. So he, can, he knew the power of Jesus, because the Old Testament told him about a powerful Messiah who would come and... So it's this idea that, that the Word of God not only tells you one, doesn't just tell you lots of different facts about yourself and about God, it compounds each one. So it's like um, shoe pastry. Is it shoe pastry? You know, that's, um, I don't really make, do much baking, so you'll know. I don't know what I'm talking about. But um, um, with, with, not shoe pastry, what's the way you make puff paste, flaky pastry? You know, it's just one layer after the other. Whatever it is. Oh, yeah, meal. Yeah, that's that, that I can't say. Thank you. Yeah, so that. It's like tiny, tiny layers that make up the, the actual pastry itself. That's the word of God. It's like these tiny layers that add on top of each other, on top of each other. And they all connect. They're all connected. You can't separate them. They're all connected, but they're all slightly different. But they all confirm the same truth about the same God. And so your experience and my experience might be totally different, but we can both come to this word and find the confirmation in it. And that's what Peter's talking about. He's saying, these things are true about you, but you wouldn't know them unless you read this word. You won't know about the precious and magnificent promises of God. How would you know them? 
If you came to know, in 1993, when I walked up in a church and, and put my trust in Jesus, what did I know? Nothing. I knew nothing. I didn't even know what sort of a sinner I was. I vaguely understood I was a sinner who needed saving, but I mean, I thought I was a decent person. So I might have needed saving from my sin, but my sin wasn't as bad as Angela's, definitely not. So, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So, I wouldn't have known anything if someone hadn't said to me, come into this word. I wouldn't have known about the glory of God or the majesty of God or the sovereignty of God or the fact that he's told me I'm going to be holy and blameless or, or that I'm going to go in a triumphal entrance into his kingdom. I wouldn't have known any of that. I wouldn't have known that I died to my sins, that I was crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I wouldn't have known that I'm in Christ and he's in me and that I'm safe as all get out that nothing can take me from Christ. I would never have known those things. I might have had experiences. I had an experience of the Holy Spirit that moved me from the back of the church to the front to give my life to Christ. That was an actual experience of the Holy Spirit. But I could never have confirmed anything from it. And in the end, I would have just put it down to, you know, I'd eaten too much for breakfast or I'd been a bit emotional about the song or, you know... Do you see what I mean? So that's what Peter's writing into. He's writing into a, a church that's being beset by all this fake news, this fake teaching. And he's saying to them, there's a way to test that you're really in the right place. And that is to test your own salvation by adding these things, ministering to yourself. By remembering you've been purified from your former sins by remembering you're not who you were and by, um, and by you know, going on and trusting the word of God as you, I've gone a bit too far because we haven't read it yet, but um, uh, trusting this word. So um, can someone read from um, verse 12 of um, chapter 1, um, yeah, down to verse 15, please. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so Peter is writing to people who he knows have heard this stuff before. He knows they know this. And yet he's saying, I'll always be ready to remind you of this. Why is that, do you think? No, he knows he's going to be... Yeah, he knows he can, he's going to go and um, he's, he's, the time of his departure is near, he says. But why would you want to be reminding someone of something they already know? Why would you want to remind them of this? Because they're going to encounter false teaching, which is going to give them an alternative way of testing their salvation, which is going to put them on, a, on the wrong path. But also, what else? It's, it's very encouraging, yeah. Yeah, 
yeah, you, we need to encourage each other. But Peter, had, he had experienced the reality of this. He had been changed. He had ministered to himself the character of Christ. Peter was completely different from the way he had been before. He has obviously gone through this process and he knows this is real. And, and he knew, knows that it was the greatest witness to the reality of Jesus. You can talk until you're blue in the face about God. You can recite Bible verses. You can just bombard people with the truth. But unless you've experienced this truth in your own life, no one's going to believe you, and they're not going to listen. So Peter knew this is the best witness to the reality of God. A changed life is the best witness. It's better than anything else. And that's why he says, I'm, I'll never be not reminding you of this, because this is amazing. This is amazing. It's amazing for you. It's amazing for everybody else, because it witnesses to the reality of Jesus. That as you grow in your knowledge of him, you become more and more a partaker of the divine nature. And as you partake more and more of the divine nature, you end up being more loving, more self-controlled, more patient, more persevering, more persevering, or whatever the word is, and you um, avail yourself of everything that God has given to you. And that all, of, all the while that's going on, what's God doing? All the while you're partaking of who he is and ministering to yourself, what's he ministering to you, according to this? Are you with me on the same page? Or? It says he's ministering your entrance into the eternal kingdom. So imagine that. Imagine this. This is God, right? And not only has he saved you, redeemed you, forgiven you, he is in the process of teaching you how to lay hold of everything he has done for you and made possible for you. And as you do your humble best to lay hold of what he's already done for you, he is actually laying out the red carpet for you to enter the eternal kingdom. I mean, can you even imagine a God that would do this, that would fill you with joy at you being able to partake of his nature. And at the same time as you're receiving joy on joy on joy on joy, he is rolling out this carpet and he is stationing trumpeteers and, and angels that are going to sing and play the violins and, and march you in to the eternal kingdom. I know that that's flowery, but that's what he says, isn't it? He's, he's making this entrance into the eternal kingdom. And can you imagine when you walk in and you look like Jesus? I mean, can you even imagine that? And, and you see him face to face and you're going to be walking in straight and tall and not shrinking back because you've just partaken of what he has already given to you. And, and can you see how it's, it's just all about you? <laughs> it's all about what God's doing for you. It's just all about you. But it's all about you because you've said, I want it all to be about you, God. I believe what you've done. I want to lay hold of what you've done. I want to live for your glory. I want to look like you. And God said, that's amazing. That's what I want too. So now, here's joy and grace and peace and, and holiness and, and assurance and all of these things. 
And there's going to be a ticker tape parade for you when you get into heaven. It's just, I mean, it's wonderful, isn't it? It's just absolutely wonderful. And uh, as I said, Peter's going to go on and he's going to say, I'm telling you these things and I'm going to call them to mind because uh, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales, verse 16, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. We talked last time about the transfiguration, which Peter is talking about here, so we won't go into that again. But he is using that to refute the false teaching about Christ not coming back. And he's just starting to say, we saw him and we heard God, the majestic glory, say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Um, so he's using this to, 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 to talk to them about the word. This is his introduction to the sureness of the word of God. Um, and, and to tell them about what Christ has done. What are the cleverly devised tales that they are um, making up? I mean, you, we have actually read on bef beyond this. So from what you know about what Peter talks about, um, what's he refuting? What's he beginning to refute now? Look at chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. Yeah, he's saying that uh, where is the promise of his coming? That's what they're saying. The, the um, cleverly devised tales that they're making up, the destructive heresies are saying Christ is not coming back. Um, what else are they saying? They're saying that everything continues on as same as it has from the beginning, from creation, the beginning of creation, chapter 3. It, says, it escapes their notice that the world was destroyed by flood. But he, he says they, they're just saying, where is the promise of his coming? Hasn't everything carried on the same way? If you think that the world is going to carry on the same way and Christ is not coming back, what does that do for you and your faith? It depresses you. Yeah, why? Why does it depress you? There's no hope. That's the thing. False teaching strips hope away. There's no hope with false teaching. And that's what he knows, and that's what he's going to talk to them about. Christ is coming back. I've seen him in power on the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw what he's going to look like when he comes back. I know what he did. Um, and, and I know that, that his, his uh, showing us that power is a um, confirmation of the fact that he is coming back again. Um, so when he goes on in verse 19 of chapter 1, he says, uh, so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention. 
um, uh, as to a lamp in a dark place. Um, how does Peter describe the world then? What does Peter think about the world? It's a dark place. It's in spiritual darkness. And um, in that spiritual darkness, what does he say is happening? I mean, he's writing about false teaching, cleverly devised tales. So where's the false teaching coming? Where is it? Where is it at work? Is he talking about false teaching at work in the world? No, he's talking about it in the church. So inside the church, there's false teaching, cleverly devised tales and destructive heresies. What are they being brought in by? Who are they being brought in by? False teachers, false teachers. And those false teachers, are they believers who just get a few things wrong? Maybe, but I think Peter doesn't think they're believers. I think he thinks that they are um, from Satan. They are um, Satan's envoys, if you like, people, but are used by Satan. So he's not talking about people who, ma who make mistakes, who, who, whose doctrine isn't perfectly correct. So you think they actually mean to be... Definitely. He's talking about cleverly devised tales. These are tales that they have devised. These are destructive heresies. So these are heresies that will destruct and destroy. So these are not people who make mistakes, because actually everybody makes mistakes. Nobody has perfect doctrine. Nobody gets everything right. So this is not someone who just made a couple of mistakes. This is not someone who truly believes in the Lord Jesus and is just teaching a couple of things that are not quite right. These are people who are deliberately defaming the name of God. Um, give me an example of how you would do that. I, I think you would be promoting experience rather than trusting God. Right. So a lot of false teaching is based on, ex like, say, gold dust. Yeah. Ex experiential yeah. Christianity. Yeah. Yes, that's definitely true. But mostly, that experiential Christianity comes from a foundation of something. And that's what Peter's writing about, actually, the foundation that it comes from. What's the foundation that Peter's talking about <coughs> here? He's saying there are two things that they're denying. His coming again and the fact that anything will happen, that judgment will happen, because everything's continuing as it's always been. So in our day, what sort of teaching is going on in the church? I don't mean in our local congregations, but in the church as a whole, in the Western world, what is the sort of teaching that you could see? You could well, that's true. There's no condemnation in Christ for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, right, yeah. 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 So what, what's that teaching come from then? If, there, if you don't have to talk about sin or repentance... Right. Yeah, that is false teaching. But think about it. Um, if, you, if you're not bothered, to, if, if sin isn't an issue, and if there's no repentance needed, what are you actually saying? That we're all good people. Everybody's essentially good, and that we're just misunderstood, or we make mistakes, or our education, or our environment, our, or our parenting uh, takes us the wrong way. That is completely the opposite of the Bible. The complete opposite. The Bible says we are all sinners. 
we are all sinners, even the best person is a sinner. And the reason we are sinning, the reason we sin, is because we are separated from God. So it's, we speak French because we were born in France. That's the thing. We, we hop because we're frogs or rabbits, right? We don't fly because we're not birds. That's the essential thing about being a sinner. It's not what you do, it's the fact of who you are. So, but if you're taught that sin doesn't, it's, it's kind of an old-fashioned word, and that you don't need to repent from anything that you've done, why does that matter then? Yeah, but, but why not? Why does it matter? Yes, but why does that matter? Because sometimes you're living by good rules. So why does it matter? You don't need a saviour. Why not? Because you're only being, you're being as good as you could be. And why wouldn't God take you? What is the reality that the Bible teaches? Yeah, you wouldn't be saved at all. But why not? Yeah. So, but so yes. So take that further then. See, there is a gap as big as an ocean between me and God. And I can never get to him. If I tried for eternity, I could never get to him. If I did every single thing right, if I kept every single rule, if it were possible, I could still not get to him. Why not? Because I'm a frog and he's a bird. Because I'm not the same species and I can never make myself the same species. The only way I can become the same species as God is to have God live within me. I cannot make myself something I'm not, no matter how good I am or how hard I try or how many rules I keep. If I'm born a frog, I die a frog unless I'm born again. Do you see what I mean? That's the essential truth about sin. It's not the things you do. Because you do those things because you're a frog. It's the fact that you're a frog that separates you from God. And until you're no longer a frog, you can't get to him. And the way you get to be with him and get to be like him is that you accept I'm a frog and I can't get there. And I can't get there because I, there's this chasm between me and him. And the reason there's this chasm is that in my veins flows the blood of my ancestors and I need a blood transfusion. I need to be completely changed. And the way God has said I receive that change and that blood transfusion is that I say, I have nothing to offer you. I know that I cannot get to be with you. And I long to be with you. That's the way. You heard the gospel. It didn't sound like that, but you heard this is good news. You couldn't get to God, but he came for you. You didn't know every one of your sins. You didn't. Some people, maybe one or two people, know the extent of their sin, but mostly they don't. Mostly you have to wait, and the patience of God is amazing, and he shows you your sin little by little. But you heard something in the gospel that told you there's no way you could get to God, so he came for you, and you clung onto him, and he saved you. He saved you. Peter is saying here that the word of God tells you all of this. It makes real to you 
the reality of Christ Jesus, the fact that he came the first time and the fact that he will come again, the fact that you could not do it yourself, but he did it for you, the fact that he is and will always be everything that you need for life and for godliness. This is what the uh, word of God tells you, and that's what Peter is starting to tell them. And he says that there's false teaching coming into the church, denying this, denying it. We have it now. Um, I'm always talking about Bethorn, and so I hate to say the names all the time. I don't really, because I always say them. But anyway, um, you know, we have people standing up and saying, teaching, teaching clearly that Jesus, when he was on the planet, was not God. He was 100% man, but he wasn't God. He only received the power of God when the Holy Spirit came upon him. You know when John the Baptist said that he beheld the Lamb, you know, the Holy Spirit descending as a dove. Now that teaching strips Jesus of his divinity and says that when he died on the cross, he was not God. Therefore, he was just a man and he cannot pay for my sin and your sin as just a man. If Jesus Christ is not God, he is not the Messiah. Because God says, there is no saviour but me. In the Old Testament, God is the saviour. If Jesus isn't God, he cannot save. So all of that teaching in Bethel, all of their school of the supernatural, everything that comes out of that school and that place is teaching that Jesus was not God while he was on the planet. And it's saying that because the Holy Spirit descended on him and gave him the power to do what he did, now Debbie can be just the same as Jesus because she's an ordinary person receiving the Holy Spirit. So she can do. Maria can do. John can do. We can all do what Jesus did. We can be like God. That's exactly, that's what I'm saying. That is exactly the teaching. And, and you see, the thing is, it's so close. Because Jesus himself said, you'll do greater things than these. So he himself said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he'll come upon you in power. You'll be able to do miracles. He said those things. Paul will write that he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, Jesus, but he, but he um, humbled himself, taking on the appearance of a man, even to death on a cross. And they take that and twist it ever so slightly so that they say that he was not God when he died on the cross. They say that he went to hell and he had to go to hell to defeat Satan that he had to spend time in hell so that you and I don't have to spend time in hell. Can you see the heresy of it, the destruction of it, because it strips Jesus. Where was Satan defeated? At the cross. At the cross. Not in hell. Jesus, Satan was defeated at the cross of Christ. How do you know he was defeated? Yes, and because Christ was risen, raised from the dead. We know these things because of the truth of what Jesus did and what he accomplished. And we, yet we have whole oh, masses of the church that are, that are teaching heresy. And we're believing it. We're just believing it. 
not just Bethel, well, yeah, no, we're not, but, you know, the church generally at large. Remember Lakeland, Florida? What's his name? Todd Bentley. Do you remember? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it defies, you can't even imagine it. You, I, I turned on, I don't watch God TV, any sort of religious TV I don't watch, but I turned on this thing one night because someone had told me about it and to watch it, and he was there talking about the fact that he was told by God to kick an old woman in the stomach to heal her with his great big heavy boots. Oh, you can get, see that online, you yeah, can no, see the YouTube. But, I mean, so, but people followed him. They followed him. Churches from the UK went over to Lakeland, Florida to get the blessing. Can you imagine a more ridiculous thing? And yet Christians were following, following, following in their droves, going over there doing that. Why were they doing that? Why? Why would Christians do that? Why would they follow? Deluded. Why are they deluded? Because they don't know the word. That's why Peter says, I'm not going to stop reminding you of these things. I'm going to keep reminding you of these things, these basic things that are ways for you to test who God is and see how magnificent he is. I'm going to keep reminding you of these things. We have the prophetic word made more sure, he said. This word of God that is prophetic, that we were told about from the Old Testament, has been made more sure by the witness, we were eyewitnesses to his glory. And it's like a lamp shining in a dark place. The um, kingdom now, theology, the fact that we can all be like Jesus was, we can change the world for Christ, the two things follow on. Christ won't return until the world is a good place. And then he'll come back. That's what they teach. That's when he'll come back, when Christians have changed the world. That's the motivation behind social projects and, and all this um, work to, to make better the lives of people, which is not wrong, don't, don't get me wrong, that's not wrong, but it, that's, the, that's the, the reason for it, because we are going to change the world for Jesus, and then he's going to come back. So, but think about that. What does that mean then, actually? Well, we don't need him because we can do it much better because we're many more than him. But also, Peter writing that it's like the lamp shining in a dark place. Well, that's not true, is it? Because this world isn't a dark place. It's a good place. It's a good place. Yeah. It's, I know. I know, but you only know that because you've read Revelation. Yes. It bad, is. Because they're not bad people. <laughs> no. And I know what it's like to be. Yeah. In the midst of yeah. Yeah. Um. Peter calls the world a dark place. That word dark means murky, like a swamp or a dark cellar, or a damp place, something that sucks you in. It is a damp and dark and murky place, and it's not going to get any better. That does not mean that there aren't good points about the world. It doesn't mean that there's not beauty in the world. It doesn't mean that. That, you know, I had people come up to me at the end of the last Saturday conference and say, you know, um, yeah, but it's not as bad as all that, Anne. The world is not as bad as all that. Because I'd talked about how many billion people were going to... I don't think I said the word hell, but... Oh, yeah, I didn't, did I? Because you told me off, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, people who say there's so much good in the world. 
There's so much good in the world. And there is, of course, of course. There's beauty and, and goodness. It was created by a beautiful God. And it's not yet fully corrupted. But it is dark and, and murky. Spiritually, it is. And getting more so. And the word of God, he says, is like a lamp shining in a dark place. Um, why is the word like a lamp? It's a light, yeah. It's truth, it's illuminating. Jesus says he's the light of the world. So if, if you were to say to someone, the word of God is like a light, it lights the darkness, it, it leads the way. And they, they say, well, how do you know that? God told me, where did he tell you? Yeah, in the Bible, where did he tell you? He told you everywhere. He told you in the Psalms that the word of God is, is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He turned to his disciples and said, you are the light of the world. And through Paul, he told us, we are light in the world. We used to be darkness, but now we are light. And the word of God is the word that illumines our darkness. Light on a hill, yeah, not to, not to cover it with a, yeah. So, believers are the light of the world. We shine forth God's light. Um, why do we want to shine? Why do you want to shine? <laughs> because the world needs light and truth, yeah. And, yeah, because everywhere the light goes, darkness flees, yeah. What else? Yeah. And what else? Admirable as that is, what else? Why do you want to know the word so that the word can illumine your path and make straight your path and, and clear out the, the heresy and the wrong teaching? Why do you want to know the world so that you can be a beacon for other people? Why do you want to be a beacon for other people? Yes. Because that was the commission of Christ. Because yeah. that's the purpose for your life. Yeah. Um, for unbelievers, what's going to happen? Darkness and more darkness. The world is going to get more and more and more dark. But we are going to do what? You and I? We are going to shine like a light in a dark place. We are going to shine. And look at what he says. Um, uh, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining until a, in, in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. What's the, yeah, what's the day dawning? Yeah, the day of the Lord when he comes back. And the morning star... Um, arises in your hearts. So our world should be getting lighter and lighter and lighter. That is the spiritual world that we live in. We should becoming, be becoming more and more able to distinguish truth from error. We should be able to assess our Christian life by the way that we are being transformed and by the, uh, the way that we are living according to the word of God. Um, how is all of this going to happen? I mean, because the thing is, every, every teacher says that they're led by the Spirit of God. 
there's not a there's not a teacher in the world who will stand up and and want to teach the Bible and especially the big names, and not say they're led by the Lord. They'll all say that they received from the Holy Spirit. They were led by the Holy Spirit. So how are we to distinguish between those who are and those who aren't? You have to check it out. You have to check it out. Which means what? Having discernment, knowing the, uh, yeah. the word. Yeah, you have to be discerning and you have to know the word. How does that happen? Yeah, you have to ask for the discernment that you need and you have to read it. You have to read it. And you have to not just read it and, um, and kind of just let it wash over you and forget about it. You have to look at what, what words you don't understand and you have to look into it. And then when you hear something, you have to say to yourself, well, he or she said that that says this and I can see that it says that, but does it really mean what they say it means? Because I thought it meant something else. So you have to check out the interpretations and you have to, the only way you can do that is to confirm that the same truth is there in all of Scripture. That what you read in Luke, you can back up in Jeremiah or Isaiah or Exodus. Or, that what you are seeing in the New Testament was prophesied in the Old. And that your understanding of Jesus is the same understanding as, that, as the Jesus who is described in the Old Testament. Um, and since the Bible didn't come by the will of man, Peter, uh, Peter says, it can't be understood by the will of man. It has to be understood by the Holy Spirit. So, it should all hang together. One spirit wrote one book through many different people, but one book. So if we want to um, be loving and looking for the coming of Christ, what are we going to do until then? You know the answers because it's the same answer all the time. What are we going to do? We're going to be in the Word of God. We're going to stay in the Word of God. What else? Call on the Lord. <laughs> We're going to call on the Lord all the time. What else? We're going to fellowship with one another. We're going to keep reminding one another of these things. We're going to stand on his promises. We're going to test our own faith and see, okay, am I trusting these promises? And we're going to pray and praise him for the fact that we can. And that's what is going to enable us to lay hold of all that God has made available. Um, okay, um, yeah. Um, you were speaking about Bethel, and um, mm. I think any, any Christian that knows a little bit about the word of God will look at that and say it's absolute nonsense because yeah. it's so off the page. Mm. But don't you think that a lot of, uh, some false teaching will come that's much more subtle? Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, and definitely. You know, it's just one thing to see more crazy things mm. and people mm. acting crazy, but mm. when it becomes more subtle, mm. and we need to be really sharp about mm. that. Definitely, definitely. But I think that's the thing, Debbie. We have a responsibility. You know, we don't like that word as Christians, cause, and I don't like the should, shoulds and ought tos and all of those. I don't like the rules. But, but, you know, God's given us a way to protect ourselves, and we'd be fools not to use that way. And, um, yeah, and it is very subtle. And false teaching is becoming more and more subtle, very close to the truth. Um, hey? Like the Yeah. Even Satan disguised himself as, as an angel of light. 
And it is so easy. You know, sometimes, sometimes I've said this before, you know, I'm driving home and I think, oh, I said that. And what, what does that actually mean then? What did I mean when I said that? Because God has brought that back to me. You know, so then I get home and the next day I have to kind of work it out. Well, did I say the right thing? Because if I didn't, I want to come back the following week and say, actually, I, that was wrong, what I said. So, and we have to be doing that. So you have to do that for me, I have to do that for you, we have to do it for each other. And we have to make sure that we just don't glibly take on what other people say without checking it out. And it's easy to check. It's easy. You just, just take one of the truths, that's not something that someone says and says, okay, can I find that in scripture? And if I take that along to its logical conclusion, because it's tempting to believe that Jesus wasn't God when he was on the planet, because he did lay aside certain of his privileges. And, and you know, he did receive the Holy Spirit. So, he is the God-man. But see what I mean? It's so close that you could see why people would go slightly wrong with it. But just that tiny half an inch wrong takes them a million miles away from the truth. No, no. Yeah, but somehow it lodges there, Carol, and we have to, yeah. So, anyway. Um, That's why in Timothy it says you, you must turn away from, yeah. he said that Paul said to me, turn away from yeah. those people because he realises it's like a virus. You exactly. Know. You can pick it up without realising. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> don't say it, John, don't say it. No, church is a fabulous place. It's a fabulous place to be. And this is church, isn't it? This is, this is the church, the body of Christ. Yes, of course, they're everywhere. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's false teaching. That's... Yeah. Yeah, well, then that's... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of that comes from a real lack of understanding and, and a lack of teaching. There's, there's very little teaching about Israel uh, inside the church. Um, and all false doctrines will deny Israel. We'll say that the church has replaced Israel. All false teachers will say that. So. No, can't go into that, Carol. So, um, I was just going to say, oh yes, uh, I talked about missions before. This is the last thing I'm going to say. I talked about missions a while ago. We have set dates for Wales, uh, the 11th to the 14th of um, April. And I just spoke to them today. We did a Skype conversation talking about what we're going to do. And it's quite exciting. So, uh, some people said that they were interested in coming with us. Um, it won't be five-star um, staying, but it will be going to Blaunau Festiniog and um, uh, helping to encourage the churches there and all sorts of different things that we're going to do. If you're interested in joining us, just let me know. Um, yeah, and if not, no shame in it, don't worry. Um, but we are going from the 11th to the 14th of April. 
So, Father, thank you that, um, thank you for this prophetic word made more sure. Thank you that it's like a lamp shining in a dark place. Thank you that Peter wrote this down, that you told him what to write so that we would be reminded and we could remind one another. Help us, Lord, to, to remember the truth of this, to test it out, to, to trust you with our salvation and to draw on you, Lord Jesus, for everything that we need. Help us to be discerning. Give us that discernment, Lord, that we might separate the um, intricacies of uh, the teaching that we hear, Lord, that we might separate it so that we know what has come from you and what has come from the enemy. And help us to be gracious in our handling of it, Lord, that we don't go around thinking that we have everything perfectly right, that we understand that we too are open to error, that we do make mistakes, that we do misunderstand. And, and keep us coming back to you, Lord God, to keep us being encouraged by one another, keep us meeting together, keep us understanding the great need we have for fellowship, true fellowship, and, and keep us coming back to you, as I say, so that we do um, receive the wisdom that we need, Lord, to be able to correctly handle your word. So I thank you, Lord, that all of the things I've just said you've already promised, and so I know that we will receive them if we ask you for them. And I thank you, Lord God, I thank you so much that it's your will that we know you and know you properly. And I pray, Lord God, that uh, you would be honoured this week and uh, until we get together again next Tuesday, I pray that we would each of us love you better and serve you more. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.